Hello everyone, my name is James Digby, and along with my co-host Alex Fellman, you'll listen to another episode of the Love the Problem podcast. This is the show where we sit down with problem solvers from around the world and share with us why they love solving the problem they have. In this week's episode, we're joined by Raju Gurung, the CEO of Planet Local, an online platform for traditional artisans in Nepal to have the ability to sell their handicrafts and products to all corners of the globe. He shares with us his journey from childhood, being raised in a remote mountain village in Nepal, where chances and opportunities in life took him throughout Europe and now to Denmark, and along the way, how he found his ikigai and what you could do to help find yours. It was a fun episode where we got to explore what it means to him to give back to the community he came from and is so far away from now. We hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, hi everybody, welcome to the Love the Problem podcast. Uh, we're here with Raju Garong from Planet Local. Um, this is actually our, our second time trying to do this recording. The first time we had some technical difficulties and our sound audio became pretty useless. Um, the, I like to say it seemed like every minute had 15 seconds missing and the conversation would just jump and we were like, oh, this is such a shame because we had a lot of really great gems. So we thought we needed to bring Raju back and try to unearth some, probably some new gems. Uh, Maybe we'll catch some of the old ones, but it's, you know, none of us honestly remember what. So what but it was done. really good. So <laughs> it was really good. Really, really take, our, take our word for it. Excited to have Raju back. Thank you, Raju, for coming, coming back again yeah. uh, and seeing where we are. And, and I mean, we really enjoyed the time last time because you, you went in through to, to what you were up to and, and, and how you were doing it. And I think we were really mesmerized by, by some of the takes of, of where you come from. So, I mean... With that in mind, do you want to go through with the, the listeners and tell them a little bit about your background and, and where you're from and, and where you're taking it to, to where you are now? Firstly, thanks again. I really enjoyed talking with both of you and we had a really good session and looking forward to this one as well. And then, so basically, I come from a small village in the Himalayas of Nepal. Uh, my interest in studying the mind took me to study neuroscience in Germany. Then, then I went on to Copenhagen so uh, to study bio-business. So it was uh, taking what, uh, what I know in the life sciences and applying that in, in the context of uh, business. So over the course of my life, it's always been trying to find uh, synergies between the things I've learned and try to combine them in the best possible way. So... And over the time when I've been studying as well, since 2014, we co-founded Planet Local, which was really a digital platform to take what uh, the local craftsmen in Nepal do best with their handmaking skills onto the global stage. And then uh, recently we, we have uh, started a new brand about called Ikigai, which really talks about finding purpose in life. So through this purposeful uh, fashion brand, we are trying to educate consumers about uh, more mindful consumption, but also trying to f help find purpose in life. And we can talk a bit later if you are, guys are keen to know what Ikigai Super is. Super cool. Yeah, it's, I'm a big fan of Ikigai myself, personally. And uh, with that, it's, you know, I think the two blend in really, really well. Um, but let's, what, before we get jump into that, I think what listeners I think would be really interested in and you said you blend all these these teachings 
can, can you get back into like, you know, what was your life like in Nepal? And, and you know, how are you using those, that part of your life into, into what you're doing now? Yeah, actually, maybe we want to jump back yeah. even before we even go into the story of, of Ikigai and Planet Local, as Alex mentioned, go all the way back because you're sitting here in Copenhagen, Denmark. It's a far, far swing away from uh, the outer reaches in Nepal. I mean, maybe we want to recount some of the story of, of, of what, how you got here even because you say you went adopted into Danish society. It's, it's all a very new thing. So, so yeah, definitely. I mean, life's very different. Uh, growing up in the mountains in Nepal in a very rugged terrain, really difficult lifestyle if I compare to the lifestyle we have generated here uh, these days, in the, particularly in the Western world, but also uh, I would say the first uh, sort of impressions I get from childhood is around sort of walking alongside the mountains, helping some of the family members in the, in the farms, really uh, carrying some uh, stuff from home to sort of uh, stuffs as in like food, uh, <laughs> so it was a so, really rural life um, yeah, it was where very, you kind of grow what you have um, to eat and there wasn't a convenience store or supermarket on availability, fresh milk or these other things. It was seems to be a... Uh, yeah, uh, d- definitely. And that's, that's something I feel really honored to have been part of, to see the evolution because... There were no concept until the six and a half years old. I was in that village in the mountains in Nepal. Uh, basically, yeah, definitely. There's no any convenience stores or anything. So it's and it's very isolated from the capital city, Kathmandu. Mm, I remember after I finished my high school when I went with my oh, if actually my high school was done actually in the city. Uh, so when I I don't know if you guys want to jump straight back. I yes. jumped in again. Jump, jump straight back. Let's let's start. Yeah, let's okay. let's uh, get into <laughs> your your transition from sort of the the mountain village yeah. to the city. Yeah. So basically, uh, life's very simple. Uh, James pointed out it's very subsistence farming. The the mountain, the village, and there's another village called Mustang, and our village being Manang. So these are called villages beyond the mountain. So they line the rain shadow area. So very little rainfall received, so it means dry vegetation. So, but there's a f- people would have a rare yaks, uh, a bit of a bit of cows, mountain goats. So it's really living very closely with nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, I learned to appreciate. Uh, every but all little those skills are being passed down from generation to generation over the years. How to farm? How to grow crops, how to live sustainably. Um, and, and it's these cultures and traditions that are also part of that village as well, I assume. Yes, definitely. But uh, I would say one of the things uh, I do observe is as we modernize, as we become more stronger in the economy, we tend to upscale our lives a little bit more towards what the West is. Mm-hmm. So basically, I would say everybody is following the same path, but it's just that every uh, different countries are at different time points on that journey. Uh, so that's 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 how I see. But also seeing what uh, some sort of the cultural elements that we have lost maybe in the West, 
Uh, it's also worth sort of being a little bit backwards in, in the development. It's also worth seeing what are the things we can preserve. And that's one of the reasons why also uh, Planet Local exists to uh, preserve really this rich heritage of handmaking. So, so quick, kind of jumping off that point, why do you think it is that, let's say, as Nepal is, is let's say, you sort of call it sort of upscaling in this development, why do you feel like they've, they've sort of, let's say, looked to the West and go, okay, we, we want to follow their trail as we upscale compared to, you know, blazing their own trail or doing a different path? Or why do you think they're, they're going, oh, we know how these people do it. We're just going to do the same thing. Why do you think it's only sort of this one story? I think a large part of it has got to do with how the media propagates. So the, uh, if you look into the news, uh, um, things that are happening in the West do have a lot of weight uh, in the media. So a large part of it, uh, polit- political agendas are also geared around mimicking, okay, let's be like Switzerland or Switzerland also being a mountainous country, but also highly developed. So there's this mentality towards uh, direction, like towards being somewhere. And it's often... Do you think the Nepalese government did that? So they looked around the countries around the world and said, well, this is kind of like us. This is not kind of like us. Uh, this is too beachy. We don't have any beaches. Uh, is, that, is that what happened? Or? <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't generalize, uh, but I haven't... S- I mean, I, I haven't uh, consolidated all the learnings from each politicians, but they do travel a bit. And uh, but of course, we have a large political instability. But in terms of sort of guiding the public towards where where they want to take the country, they always take examples of oh, let's be like Switzerland. You know, there's always this. Uh, and in a sense, Alex, you're pointing a really interesting question there, is that what? how does a country really define its, uh, its vision? Should it always be about mimicking? How do we balance that with also authenticity? And to be honest, I, uh, I don't feel like that's being really addressed. Um, so let, let's, let's get into and jump back. So, so you're living in this village until you were about six. Let's say before we go to your journey from the village to the, the, the city, are there any, let's say, teachings or learnings or, or something that, that you think stayed with you from your time in the village that, that you keep with you till today? Um, that, that you say, like, ah, I kind of what you said before, uh, I want to make sure I don't lose X. Um, even though I'm, to some extent, you could argue, you know, you're going through a similar transformation as these countries on a personal level. And you're getting, you know, personally, you're going from, from kind of less developed to more developed parts of the world. But, but there is sort of this need to, to, to stay authentic and, and keep some of these. So, so I don't know, are there something that you could say that ah, I'm, I've decided that, you know, I really want to hold these values or traditions or et cetera till this day? Yes, definitely. Um, and I do reflect quite a bit on that because at the end of the day, no matter where I am, uh, I'm a sum of everything I've experienced in life. And the f- first chunk of six and a half years in the mountains in Nepal, what it has really taught me is about l- looking at systems from a, in a very holistic perspective about how do we interact with nature? What's our role on this earth? So it's, I tend to take humans as just part of this equation of the part of the planet I was living in. So sort of, 
respect for the nature and respect for every components that are interacting around our life. That's something I really keep to myself a lot. And then the other thing would be really around uh, being, there's this uh, humble uh, sort of uh, humble feeling around really being uh, grounded in some of the core core values. When when you are living in a very fast-paced environment, you often uh, forget the subtle things that, that make life interesting. And that's this subtleness is what I get to experience a lot more uh, when life is uh, not concerned by too many worldly uh, elements. So a lot of uh, learnings uh, around the, 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 the human mind because I was uh, growing up in a very Buddhistic family. So I got trained about how to look at things in a very positive way. Maybe it's a very bad year uh, for crops or anything, but you 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 eventually get by uh, uh, working working your way out using other resources. So it's so, really this uh, element about uh, positive thinking, but also staying connected to nature. That was ingrained into you from a very early age. Then, by the sounds of it, <clears throat> thinking about how you can interact with the world and how the world interacts with you. Um, again, let's talk about, you know, in terms of the cultures and traditions, is that passed down as something that you feel that you could also pass, pass on to the next generation. Like if you have children, uh, these are the sort of things and the values that you think you can also partake on as well, as you remove yourself from, from where you, you grew up and, and, and stood before previously. Yeah. I mean, talking about culture, uh, I'm fortunate enough to have raised up, in the in the mountains in that very traditional culture so i i even speak the very uh the mother tongue which is spoken only in this part of the in this villages in the mountains those two villages that are past the the past the mountains yes past the mountains and uh in this uh these days more and more people are being raised up in the city the capital cities or abroad so that definitely has a big consequence on how uh, some of these cultures get passed. But at least I've been, for example, involved in a, in a project uh, which was initiated actually by a foreigner from the U.S. Uh, where the idea is to preserve this rich uh, language uh, heritage by building a dictionary and educating the young generation of uh, people whose uh, parents come from this region in Nepal but have been growing up uh, elsewhere in the world, like let's say the US or, or in the capital city. Mm -hmm. So there are certain elements, yeah, around, uh, I would say, yeah, we are in a, in a point where this uh, cultures needs to be looked at before they uh, go out. And of preserved, it's, it's an interesting point of internationalization. How do we um, look after these cultures and traditions in, in that same way? One languages, we're seeing more and more languages and more and more dialects lost time and time again. Is it something that should be preserved, something that, that needs to be preserved, or do we go towards a more singular language? If so, what is that? Is it Chinese? Is it Spanish? Is it English? It's not like back in the 1800s where it's a flip of a coin and you're selling New York for a for hundred bucks. Uh, and a bag of pennies. I mean, <laughs> uh, I think your history is slightly off. We got to go a little bit farther than that. But um, 
No, I, I think I think that's really interesting. And, and do you? I mean, do you sort of feel? Because at least from what I've seen, kind of in different historical contexts, once a geography starts going under this transformation, often these cultural things are lost within one to two generations. And and do you think that 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 that's the path that's happening in Nepal? That that with how many people have either left the country or or urbanized or whatever that within one or two generations these these cultures might not really be there anymore the certainly i would say we are under that uh set of transformation happening from a cultural point of view uh, with more and more people moving abroad there's a lot of uh brain drain definitely with that comes uh certain uh, lifestyles are disappearing for sure so as people uh, move abroad, the number of people that's living a different set of lifestyles, I would say the culture, core culture values are still intact because when I see at communities abroad, let's say the largest chunk of Nepalese community being in the US, in the UK, uh, a bit in Germany, uh, quite a few in Denmark. So all of them have this uh thing around you they have a very collective uh view on the police uh, as a group as a society mm-hmm. so they tend to still uh do a lot of uh events around creating this sense of unity and retaining that sense of identity which i feel i admire a lot yeah. but on the other hand uh in terms of the lifestyles that people lead are are still very uh very modern right so i would say we have lost uh, some elements, some facets of the the traditions that that come into play. But on the other hand, the core values I think still stick uh, with with the people, no matter where they go. So this it's this sense of so identity. nature as opposed to nurture kind of feeling here, and that kind of permeates through a little bit more. I know I'm crossing the divide, Alex. It's not quite. But um, because I think it's say that identity, your sense of identity is shaped in pretty much the first probably five, seven years of your life, as far as I understood. And I think there's a study on that. So uh, where you spend most of that time is going to shape really your views on the world. But in terms of the lifestyles, you adapt to the new place, you know. Yeah. So I think, you know, we're all, all expats here uh, to some extent, but, you know, I think you have a story very similar to mine, Raju, but where would you class yourself from? Are you are you from the little village that is past the mountains? Are you from Kathmandu where you were raised and you grew up and you learned most of your things? Are you from the places in between or are you from where you live now? Where do you place yourself as a as a person? So I actually don't identify myself with a particular place, but rather a set of uh, set of experiences, large chunk of experiences that I've experienced in nomad different parts of the world. So because I like to take at life as more being looking at where you are. So if if you looked at me and said. Uh, where who are you Raju now where are you now I would say I definitely say somebody from the mountains in Nepal and not leading a very simple life 
then you, then you looked at me and said, maybe at the age of 20, where are you when I was in Germany? Then I'd have such a different uh, perspective. So I would say we evolve. Our view on who we are evolves, but the core sets of identity that guides us stays the same. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I, I'd like to take myself as a global citizen. In our case now, where we are getting more and more globalized, Yeah. I think there's this need to take a very global approach to who you are. And especially people like us who are t uh, even using digital technologies uh, to, for the benefit of whatever we're doing. I think a globalized uh, mindset is what's necessary. But of course, uh, in terms of officially being uh, sort of associated, I'm still in the police, right? Uh, holding an official passport in the stamp, and, right? You know, that's, uh, <laughs> so, do you associate yourself as as someone from beyond the mountains? Is that uh, you know, is it where you, if someone asks you where you're from now, present day, Raju, where would you class yourself from? Yeah, I mean, the being raised up in the mountain, uh, that's one of the key part of who I am. No. But it's not the only thing, right? No, of that's course. That's I how I like as, to as growing up. Uh, in a third country as well mm. and going through the experiences in a western world mm. with a Asian face and different coloring and, and, and I'm speaking from experience Alex you had this puzzled no. look on <laughs> your face but uh, it's, <laughs> more the, uh, no <laughs> it's more the, the element of when you were younger growing up did you class yourself as the boy from the mountains or did you associate yourself as being one with everyone else say actually I'm German I speak the language I'm here with you as well did you go through that period course these questions I'm asking you which are very personal but hmm so yes over the years I've I've learned to I think we I express it probably not express it in the right way before basically I feel like uh, we humans are almost a collection of all the memories we have mm -hmm. and so a large chunk of my memory still from the m mountains in Nepal, which keeps me really grounded yep. to my humble beginnings. I always, you know, stay humble in no matter what uh, great things happen. I'm still grounded in those uh, principles that I grew up in. Then on the other hand, there's this sense of looking at the world from a globalized standpoint, which I actually learn a lot mm. by being in Europe. I still retain that. So at the end of the day, all I'm doing is a uh, is a function of all these uh, memories and experiences I've had Super over cool. the years. I think that's, uh, you know, I think no, I think it's interesting. Uh, I don't know. One thing that sort of occurs to me, and, and from what I've seen, is, is also kind of like you guys being sort of an expat who's lived in many places and, and whatnot. Is I think your identity changes a lot more than for the people who I've seen who haven't had that experience. And I think you become a lot more, and then you say this, the sort of holistic vision of who you are because it's shaped by so many different things comparatively to someone who, you know, may have, you know, either stayed in their hometown or stayed in their own country, depending on how big your country is. The States is kind of a really big place. So you, maybe you can change a lot within in one country, but. I've been but, to the States quite often actually in going into not the, the capitals or the, the, um, Know, even within the states yeah. so even going into just outside of 
Orlando, Jacksonville, for example, mm. where the Jaguars play. Yeah. Um, I remember sitting there with the hairdresser and, and the hairdresser professing she's never left the state before, yeah. the state of Florida. And, you know, this is us on a trip. We started off in Vegas, then we went to Texas, <laughs> and then we caught the Monday night game in, in you know, Florida. So three days, three different states, just for the sake of, of entertainment. And, and going to another person that had never left and, and lived that entire life in that area with those views, with those points. Not to say that those views are wrong or right, but of course they are shaped by, by who you are and, and where you're from, ultimately each and every time. Um, moving on with that, I mean, like, do you feel that, of course, you can, you can look back and say, I don't want to have the, ex- the opportunities, but do you feel that you would have the, the positioning without the experiences that you had as well? Uh, definitely, definitely not. Because, because of the, uh, definitely not. So if I, uh, I could only sort of uh, presume what would have happened if I didn't move at all uh, from that bubble, which was probably still a nice bubble because, I mean, you, you I come to this uh, new sets of world, it has its new uh, own sets of problems it has its so that I need to deal with. So there's this level of complexity and problem solving uh, that happens. It's just the nature or the type of problems that you need to confront seems to change. But fundamentally, uh, the way you solve it is still done, I would say, very similarly. So, no, I wouldn't say, like, I would have had a had this identity were it not for all these experiences I've had in Germany or or Denmark. Interesting. Well, that, that wraps up a, a really nice segment for us, you know, just going through some of your background and, and who you're from. I think after the break, we'll look into going through into Planet Local and what you're doing and sharing with our listeners. Let's take a break. We'll take a quick break and we'll jump back in in, in a minute. Welcome back from the break. Right before the break, we talked a little bit about sort of his childhood in the mountains of Nepal. Uh, let's sort of jump in. Uh, we got a little bit sidetracked on a lot of sort of identity topics, which was quite interesting. But let's jump back in. So, so you're saying, Raju, around the time you were sort of six and a half, you you moved to the to, to the capital to sort of get your your educational training. Can you tell Can you tell us about that change and and you know what was it like now to to kind of come from the mountains and be in the city and and just give us give us some color on that. Yeah. So basically, six and a half, I had this uh, leg injury that uh, took me to the city because there was no proper hospital or medical care center in the mountains in Nepal. I was home medicated for the first two days, and then on the third day, there was a chartered helicopter flight uh, that came in to drop some tourists. So I was fortunate enough to be taken back uh, to the city. So that injury was in turn uh, actually setting the scene for my start in education. So this actually is, is the kind of pebble movement that is rolling down the hill 
uh, and, and kind of gathering a little bit more from from having an injury that just was not being treated where you were and you didn't have with it, it just to be going into my mind I was just assuming though mountain village there wasn't a lot of treatment you got maybe some bandage and some stick that you got around and that's about it am I just being completely out of order here is that, is that not true or so I was uh, home medicated with some uh, mountainous uh, herbs in the in the first two days right so there is that's why I was talking earlier about this affinity to being connected to the nature because nature provides all solutions that we have for that we experience as humans mm -hmm. actually it's, it, can I ask on, on that just a little bit sorry to cut you off um were these mountain herbs more for like the pain of the in injury or was it for the repair or, or like what was sort of the you know why were they giving you like these specific herbs what was the the objective so yeah so what what would happen is they diagnosed the pain uh around my sort of like this uh how do you call this area i can't see where it. the it's hips like join the hip the yeah. hips are joining in, so the joint joint point is where I was uh, hurt, and then so there would be this uh, mountain kind of like a doctor, right? He's basically known through trial and error. Lots of this, what herbs works for what what remedy, right? So there will be herbs for fever, for example, for mm -hmm. headache. So there's uh, all sorts of. Uh, Do you know what the actual problem was? Was it like a trapped nerve um, in in the hip, or what was it that? So basically, some of the the muscle fibers and the collagen uh, in that area were damaged because I fell off like a field uh, where you oh, got wow. different slopes. Uh, but of course, I knew the details uh, going into the city. But of course, in the mountain, it's like, okay, you got pain in this area. So let's treat it with some of these medicinal herbs. And then, I think my question was like, how, does medicinal herbs help physical injuries like a trapped nerve? Uh, can, can herbs from the mountains also release something like that? I'm guessing not. It's more the... Is my stereotype right? Is that, is that how I think like I was just, I don't know, maybe that. like is it more for the pain or the inflammation or or like these things to me seem possible for something yeah. that these but but I imagine it I don't know how much could it get to the underlying because you can't see the fact that the collagen is trapped along with muscle tissue in that area. So if you broke something, uh, that would be really difficult to repair in the mountains. Uh, if you had uh, bleeding, for example. There are some mountain uh, garlic that can actually s stop the bleeding. So by actually uh, creating a fiber, uh, we, we've got this, uh, it activates this thrombo thrombin and proteins that seal the wounds. So there are some really interesting uh, medicinal herbs, but of course, yeah. not everything can be treated. I certainly was not being uh, treated uh, with the mountain herbs. So on the third day, Got a chance to go to the city as a young boy. Uh, after I finished the treatment, I, as a young boy, I was probably nagging that I don't want to be back in that village because if I fall sick again, there's nobody to treat me. Probably I was this young child just nagging all about this. And then so I ended up being uh, sent to a boarding school. So that's how I ended up in the city to al uh, answer Alex. Uh, it's a long detour we made. But basically... Uh, 
that was the first moment and as uh, James pointed out it was the first really the ch- big turning point in my life where I saw education as a very fun thing so I was really happy that I got a chance to learn because there were so many subjects so I really enjoyed the process of learning and I was eventually doing really good and started getting scholarships oh, wow. so it was really fun for me I took learning as a really big uh, part of my life uh, how's it being away from your parents for for that period is yeah. that uh, you know going away from those other decisions hard decision to make at the age of six or seven I'm wonder sure yeah and it's and it's quite uh, bold of my family members to just let me go to boarding school as well uh, in in the first uh, few months I would say I, I missed them a lot because they ended, they were in the uh, in the mountains. I was in the city in the boarding school, but eventually, you know, you learn uh, to overcome that uh, f- pain or fear. Mm-hmm. And then I developed uh, one of the p- biggest thing that came out is really uh, independence, and then uh, this curiosity for learning that was initially embedded uh, in the fascination I had with nature in the mountains, but the process of s- studying actually amplified that even more. Oh, well, so you studied quite a lot, though, um, over the period, and you were from recording last time. What if, if you go through your honours, what, uh, what did you go through in total? Uh, where? In for your studies. Through your study. Okay. So, honours as in, what would you mean, honours? Your degrees, and what, what, did you, what did you study for? Okay, so basically I started in like upper kindergarten, so I spent about 12 years until the end of high school. Until uh, grade 10 is basically all sorts of subjects, general knowledge, social studies, environment, health, yeah. uh, English, uh, the Nepali, so all sorts of subjects. But then after grade 10, what you do is you start specializing. I took biology, uh, biological sciences, as my core focus uh, and that happened for two more years and that's when I finished my high school and quickly I mean I know and I'm assuming sort of jumping ahead and our listeners might not know but right post high school is when you sort of came to Europe right can, can you sort of still staying on this section and I know it's at a different level so it's hard to, to compare but but can you sort of give you know how is sort of education in, in Nepal structured differently than, than education in, in Europe or the West or, or I know you're at a different place so it might be hard to do a apples to apples comparison but can, can you elaborate on that a little bit of, I don't know I'm just curious I I would imagine they're different but maybe they're not okay I'll, I'll come to that but just yeah. uh, I didn't move immediately after okay. I finished my high school they were I started uh, doing some trading business in the handmade goods starting when I was in the last three years of my high school and then went on after my high school doing full time for two more years. Then I moved to Germany, right? Okay. Then when I look at the key differences, it's really there's this big emphasis on rote, almost like rote learning uh, back in Nepal. And you'd see that really very much in a lot of uh, countries in Asia, mm-hmm. where uh, here, while on the other hand, uh, here in the West, I find, at least I haven't been to a high school, but at least I've heard from uh, people's experiences, 
uh, that uh, you take a very pragmatic approach uh, to learning, to really embedding yourself in mm -hmm. projects and cases. While we used to have some components of that, I would say primarily like maybe 70-80% of the studies were really focused on absorbing as much as you can, maybe without sometimes even knowing the concepts around it. So your how you absorb knowledge or assimilate it was a function of uh, how good was uh, a teacher at the delivery of those concepts. Because most of the time the, uh, the studies were happening uh, just at, uh, you know, just simply trying to, people would just memorize things, you know. Yeah, and that's 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 where uh, I see the biggest uh, difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think also going into that, that whole studies point, I think that's a you know, really interesting play and in, in looking to see where where that came from. Um, I want to maybe jump forward a little bit now, Raju, going into from your studies and and you know going into Europe, but then you you now planet local where you've gone full circle back round into seeing how you can help the local industries. Now, as an impact entrepreneur, was that something that you wanted to kind of jump into right away as, as one of the first things, or did it just come by chance, saying, actually, there's a problem here, I think I have the solution, and there can be money made on this? Is that something that... Yes, thanks, James, for... That's a very good question. Because one, what happened is uh, I was already working with these local artisans back in Nepal. But then my uh, fondness to study neuroscience, because I was always studying the mind in a, from a Buddhist philosophical context. So it brought me to Germany, right? Then my initial uh, sort of mindset coming to Germany was maybe I'd end up becoming a neuroscientist. So I started studying, uh, doing this uh, research, right? It was a very research-driven uh, university, Jacobs University, very international. So I learned a lot around uh, intercultural uh, competencies because we were studying and living with over students from over 100 countries. So that really shaped a lot uh, of the insights that I already had around uh, on one hand, around what Nepal is really good about. In a sense, I realized more about the potentials that exist in Nepal by coming abroad to, to Europe. And then uh, there was, uh, and then on the other hand, uh, I was seeing globalization in two different worldviews. When I come to Europe and look at the world, the world feels truly globalized, everything is connected. But when I go back to developing world, I don't feel the world is as inclusive. Mm -hmm. Globalization is as inclusive. So in that, uh, amidst that point, uh, the, uh, the, the concepts were probably always in my mind, sort of circling around all these two themes, like how to bring more inclusivity, how to, what's the role of globalization, uh, and what's about this hand making in Nepal? Mm -hmm. And that sort of all unleashed when the earthquake happened in uh, 2014 okay, in yeah. Nepal, uh, April. That was 25th. Uh, that's when the earthquake struck, and me and my co-founder, when we were having a 
just a random conversation uh, around what can we do to help Nepal. An idea came to, okay, we've always done some hand-making uh, products. I was always doing that before I came to Europe. So why don't we sell some some of these handcrafted products that the artists You were making made? yourself or the other people were making? So you had the idea to connect the two people together. Yeah, we had, uh, at least before coming to Europe, I had been working with the artisans back mm -hmm. in Nepal. So we got in contact with some of the artisans, immediately got some of the products. And then uh, we did some fundraising where all the profits that came from the sales went to a small NGO that we collaborated with to help the affect earthquake victims in the remote village called Sindhupalchok. Mm -hmm. So that uh, during that process, we learned that people actually liked the stuffs, you know, mm -hmm. so it was uh, it was not like, let's start a company or something. But, you know, that uh, earthquake combined with the experiences around uh, the reflections around uh, I, I globalization. Kind of that, I kind of find that really interesting, though, that, that it, what it sounds like you're saying is that you're like, all right, we've got to do something about this earthquake. Oh, we have these Nepalese artisans with this stuff. We don't actually know if anyone wants it, yeah. but we're just going to put it out there anyways and, and hope that someone is interested in this. And then you found out, oh, actually, people are. Yeah. I, I think that's really, I don't know, I just find that very interesting of like, oh, we have something, but we don't know if anyone wants it, but let's try it anyways. Um, let's let's see if we can use this to help people regardless of, of if if other people want it or not. And you find out, oh, no, people do want this. This is interesting. Yeah, because we want it not only to be like give money, but rather we want to give something that Nepal has to offer. And then uh, in so you return... So you want it to be a donation, donation platform, sorry, where it's just like, you know, there's an earthquake, go help these people, just give them money. There needed to be something behind it. Was there something that you wanted so that it lasted beyond the earthquake initially? Or was it just actually by pure pride? I don't want to kind of give money or throw money to these people, but I want them to give something back as well. Is that Which way do you think it went first? Mm, so basically, it... Uh, it went more like uh, people were happy to sort of donate for this cause, but in return, they were getting something meaningful from Nepal. So it, in the end, it became very uh, a meaningful donation rather than just being... Uh, so it's almost like a mindful purchase, but actually uh, it's a form of donation, right? So there was this... Uh, concept that I think people really loved that they were able to retain something for themselves as well uh, so in no way we were sort of thinking of ourselves as a donation platform because we were just doing you know just kind of lean startup just uh, talking with a local gallery in the north of Germany and then just saying hey can we do some exhibitions of this uh, amazing crafts and then uh, I also had some of my photos on sale because I used to do photography. And then, uh, and then some of these uh, products from the artisans. And then we, we, that, that, was, that gave us a lot of feedback on how they perceived mm -hmm. the products, but also uh, we're able to donate uh, for, the, for the cause. And that was really beautiful. And it really inspired us to think more about, uh, can we do something on uh, on this handmaking, uh, preserving this rich heritage of handmaking? 
Super because nice. when we looked at Nepal, what we really got is two key things like uh, fostering better tourism products and services because we have lots of rich nature and then uh, preserving this rich handmaking culture, which sort of amplifies the value of craftsmanship because we are now living a very automated, we're going to have more automation, everything's going to be uh, made on probably machines. So in that light, we actually think arts and crafts can bring a bit of beauty on the human creativity. Yeah. And we want to preserve that because we only think that the value of this is going to get higher as people would find less and less time to do such things. Really nice, yeah. So I think it's an interesting point to see you know, where, where the kind of that came about from um, and, and the jumping points of where you wanted to take um, what into being now from a particular point to now being a, your company. And then now evolving from that once again into being something else and part of what you want to do. And, you know, so Planet Local, we hear is not your only thing that you're working with now. And you're sitting upon Ikigai. Um, I mean, maybe before we jump into the, the next break, do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about Ikigai and, and your take on Ikigai? Yes, definitely. So Ikigai is basically a brand we spun out of Planet Local. So it's still part of Planet Local family, we can say. Uh, but the brand was spun out to really inspire people to find their purpose in life, but through very pur purposeful fashion, we can say. Because in a sense, we are making people reflect about a combination of their style, uh, what purpose uh, do they have in their life, and the impact of their purpose. So really blending them together and Ikigai is really uh, probably, James, you, it seems you know about the concept as well. It comes from basically a Japanese philosophy of finding purpose uh, in life. Basically, the reason we all wake up in the morning, it says that the reason we do so is a combination or intersecting points of four elements. Like what you love, what you're good at, what the world needs and what you can be paid for, which is sort of like your value. I like the way the Japanese are pragmatic at the same time to say, mm. you know what, it's also what you're, what you're being paid for. <laughs> yes, eventually, if you can be paid for what you're good at, what the world needs and what you love. It's so a fantastic a good... little spot, isn't it? And I yeah, think and that um, it's an interesting point to take, you know, yes, it's a Japanese philosophy, but I'm guessing you see a lot of intersections between where you've come from culturally and what you like to also share with the world. So also two very different areas within the same region, but also coming through. And I also have that same belief looking through saying, well, there are so many people working out there at the moment and doing things that they just hate. They just hate working. And I, and I, I can't fathom it because, you know, as an entrepreneur for, for many years, you, you do what you love each and every time. And if you can get paid for it, that's a bonus. <laughs> and going through different elements. So I think that... That philosophy, I think, is, is, a, is a rich one that should, should, you know, we should, would love to look into maybe after the break and, and touch upon it a little bit more. I cool. think so. Yeah, definitely. I think we'll take a quick break and we'll jump back in a second. And we're back for the last section uh, that we have here with Raju. Uh, right before the break, we talked a little bit about the, the Japanese philosophy of, of Ikigai. Um, I was just saying, so, so 
how did you sort of like use this philosophy to really build and, and create the brand that you have now? Initially, when we started uh, Planet Local, we focused, uh, you, you could almost say we didn't have a very clear focus. We were more about helping as many artisans as possible. So we ended up with a very huge uh, product portfolio that became very difficult to manage as a startup. So what then came out was a series of reflection about what are we really trying to achieve with Planet Local to reflect more deeply at the fundamental level. And over time, when Ikigai came in, into our sort of radar, into our understanding, that was when we had the spark. Like, so it, 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 it gave us a much better clarity and framework to actually guide this new brand. So what we did was the idea was to really focus on one of the product portfolios, which was around uh, fine natural uh, apparels that were made from fine natural fibers like cashmere, merino wool and yak wool. So really uh, and all handcrafted. So on one hand, we had this whole idea around promoting more mindful consumption. But on the other hand, we ourselves want to represent a very purpose sort of driven sort of uh, entrepreneurs who are really focused on mindful consumption, but in the uh, in the apparel space. And we saw a lot of uh, issues around uh, fashion being considered not so transparent. There's a huge surge of ethical fashion brands and whatnot, but there is this uh limitations in the authentication part so what we would like to do is really using this ikigai framework to inspire our audience to really help find their purpose in life help reflect on the purpose of their own life because we believe like eventually if everybody of us are doing things that matter the most to us we'll have a much better world so that's really the premise for why we use ikigai uh, to to further f- further the brand messaging and it resonates uh, very well I would say and why I, I don't know just something for me and, and I think this could just be how I am and, and what I, why do you feel like fashion can be a medium to sort of either find or or express your purpose like like how how do you see those two sort of connecting and interacting with each other I mean. Uh, People use uh, fashion for different purposes, a large majority being to express who they are. It's, it's a form of expression. So, so why not embed that sense of uh, being a very empowered individual who is there to make an impact in this world? So that's what we really want to convey, you know, through because fashion is such a strong form of ex- expression that everybody's using. Everybody believes, uh, let's say, a luxury brand because it's it's identified with something. So we want it to be more about not the brand itself, but about each individual consumer's uh, purpose. So. The idea was to have the feeling that I'm an empowered being 
when I wear this because it's all about helping me develop the focus required to uh, build the best manifestations of myself. So really it's about uh, helping people find their reason for being because oftentimes in our daily life with all the daily activities we get lost and in terms of reflecting on who we really are and why we stand so we we really felt there was a need to have this wake up call through through fashion and and do you i don't know coming jumping off that a little bit um, do you feel how do i want to put this as there's sort of two sort of questions are are you know on one side like what are the consequences of, of not finding your purpose and your passion in life and then do, do you feel because it, it seems like in, in in modern times there's a a rise of people looking for this and and why why do you think that is that that kind of now there's sort of i feel like we're in a moment where where this is more and more of society is moving in that direction and feeling like there's this need to to some extent self-actualize or, or really get that to the core of their being and, and just that good that's a Alex that's a very good question because when uh, I can share some of the th things that I have realized when I reflect on this because I look at things a little bit from a systems perspective and what I see is when we look at history we are essentially going in cycles and the cycles could be yeah, large enough in this case it's periods of over about 100 200 years so where we see that we at some point we said we all have like an empty voids in our heart and we are trying to fill it with something and that void we try to fill it with this concept of consuming materials right mm -hmm. and so uh, and now we are at a point where we said oh fine we're consuming a lot of materials but a lot of people are realizing, but what's but what's what's the impact of everything that I'm consuming? Mm -hmm. So we're starting to see this next cycle of wave where we're realizing the impacts of everything we do. So that's why I think this next wave is going to be all about correcting for the mistakes that we have done in the previous cycle. So we're going to see more and more of. Uh, brands more and more of uh, activities around ensuring transparency and authenticity and I, we want to really be on that way because we feel it's really it it feels right for for the great work that the artisans do to help empower them but then also through this fashion really help build a more connected and inclusive world i think that's really really interesting and, and i think you've touched on something quite important is of, I agree with you for the last probably, I think it's a little bit less than 200 years, but probably, you know, since the industrial revolution, we've been in this age of, of consumption. Hmm. Um, and I like this idea of you're saying, you know, there's, there's this, this sort of hole or pits inside of most people kind of feel. And I, I feel like part of the reason, I don't know, we've gotten to a point where we've realized that through consumption, the pit almost seems bottomless. We can continue to throw things in the pit and, and the hole never fills. It just, takes more things yes. almost like a black hole it just sucks and sucks and sucks and sucks and at some point we said what what are we accomplishing here 
is, is, is sort of the sense that I get is it's sort of, you know, what are we accomplishing by just keeping, we can throw things into the pit forever, but, but it doesn't actually seem like it's closing that hole. Yes. And, and I think we're, we're now starting to, to really look, look for, okay, what will actually make a difference in, in, in this, this, this pain or whatever that I feel of, of, of this emptiness that, that trying to, to build onto something. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, like we'll still be consuming, uh, consuming, right? We will still be consuming, but the nature of consumption will change dramatically, and that's where the frequency of consumption will change. So, from being too much uh, not conscious about what we consume to being more conscious, so everything we own would have meanings, would have significance. So. So what we are continually trying to promote in our brand messaging, even when we go to markets and all, is to really say, consume what's needed, but uh, but consume uh, consume when it's actually when you actually have the need for it, but when you consume, do consume uh, stuffs that actually have tangible impact, and in our case, it's really about ensuring impact on the artists, on the creators. Uh, who who handcraft these things, right? So it's not to say, hey, you already have scarves, buy this other scarf. It's to say, hey, we know people are consuming a lot. You guys, uh, most of us are consuming a lot. So just buy when it's when there's actually a need for it. So in in some cases where people do remember us when sort of they are, they all their scarves that were there got old. Now they have gotten this feeling uh, shift in mindset, which is really like, oh, I'm going to consume few but meaningful things. But when I consume, I'm going to remember you as being one of the players to reach out. So this is where uh, it's, it's going to be the future of consumption is really about owning few meaningful things that have tangible impacts around you. Sure. I, I want to, I, I think it a slightly different but, but curious thing from that, uh, someone was telling me recently that most people have, if they actually counted, the average is something like 60,000 items, which is, which you start to be like, that's, that's insane. But then you start to like bring it out and you go, oh crap, like I probably do have 60,000 items. Like, I don't know, to some extent, like what, from what you're saying for most people, like how many of those items do you think are actually, you know, impactful or valuable to that person? Like, it would seem to be a significant number of them probably are not, are things that you sort of, I don't know, have because you feel like you need to, or you bought it once for a specific purpose, but then you never need it again, or, or you know, you got it as, as gifts from, from people you don't necessarily know very well, or, or what are, I don't know, what are your thoughts on that of, of, for, for the amount of stuff that most people tend to have? How, what percentage of them is, is really impactful for their, for their lives? Or, or I don't know, what are you finding around that? I would say uh, it's hard to put a number to it, in my mm -hmm. opinion, because what's important for me might be very different from what's important for you. But I would say large majority of what we own might be of things that we actually... Uh, consumed on a very impulsive manner or that things where uh, you were not uh, 
allowed to or you didn't put yourself to reflect on do, just do I really need this or does this add value to my life? So what we find in our discussions actually with the consumers who are just hanging around at different markets is really uh, that by having this conversation on mindful consumption, we really instill this uh, thought process in them about being a bit more mindful about uh, what they own. And so that's, uh, that's, a, that's a game changer. And so today we might inspire 10 people uh, to think a little bit differently about how we consume. And that's really the uh, positive message that we want to reinforce, you know. But I would say large majority, but I would, I would have trouble putting a number to it, but maybe it's in the range of single digits <laughs> that uh, wait, maybe... Is, is that, wait, is that single digits being valuable or single digits... Single digits being, being probably actually valuable. Okay, in terms of percentages, yes. let's say. So, so you, you might have, I don't know, let's say... I'm just trying to do, do the quick math in my head. 10% would be six. So maybe you have like a thousand items. That'd be, maybe let's say 10% to 6,000. Yeah, that'd be like, I don't know, 3% or something. Yeah. A thousand items are actually really, really valuable. And the other 50,000 are kind of... If we say that an average, yeah, an average person consume uh, ha actually has 60,000 uh, items, which is, I feel, quite, quite extreme, quite... Quite a lot. I think it's looking at uh, an extreme consumerist uh, population. I, I I don't know. We'll have to look this up in an internet. You can you can vouch us on this. But it, someone apparently did a study, and I, I think the thing is, is I think if you start to look at all the little bells and whistles and and whatnot, all of a sudden these items add up very quickly. And if you start to think of like, oh, you know, imagine I don't know, all the forks and spoons and da da, da that you have. All the different creams and lotions and da, 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 that you have, all the books that you have, all the clothes that you have, and keep all the sheets and towels and and these types of things, rubber bands. All of a sudden, yeah. this, these numbers add up really fast. Yeah, and and you don't really realize, and all of a sudden you go, oh shit! Like I actually do have sixty thousand article items in my life, um, and I didn't even. Because I, I agree with you, I think most people would would. Grossly, and oh no, I'm not that type of person. I don't have that many things. Um, but I forget who did the study, and we'll have to look this up. But that, that's what they said was the average for the average person. Which yeah, is, is, yeah. is kind of crazy. Sixty thousand items. That's a lot of items. It seems. The, yeah, that's uh, James. James is back in the studio. He had to step <laughs> out for a second. Yeah, no, that's what we were talking about. Someone, someone told me about they did a study on this, um, and we we're just getting into, you know. Their, their concept at Ikigai is to really, you know, make sure that, that each of the items you get through them is super valuable and meaningful. And considering that most people, from, from what the study was saying, have 60,000. Wow. And, and we're trying to get a sense, you know, if you, let's, let's assume that statistic is true. How many of those items could really be meaningful? It's probably no more than a handful, realistically. Um, Actually, this is a good jumping point, and I'll come into it. <laughs> and just, you know, it's a segue across. If you could have five things you can do, take with you to the, to the desert island that you're going to be marooned <laughs> upon, what are the five things that you would take with you as of today? And I'm guessing let's, the, let's, the mixer, let's, let's, the let's, microphone yeah. is one, is yeah. that? <laughs> no, see, 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 there you go. There's two items, we need the cable, so that's three. 
So, so James, uh, uh, technically, uh, they come as a pack, right? <laughs> but but, let, but let's do this. Let's change. I want to change your question slightly to, to get a little bit focused on what we're talking now. Not what five items would you bring with you to the island, but what five items do you feel uh, is an expression of your that, purpose and and sort of your icky guy and, and whatnot? If, if you had to sort of lump them into this this group of okay, what are the five most valuable expressions of, of who I am and my purpose in life? Um, let's open up to you, and I guess we'll. I need to think about this to be perfectly honest. Not not something I was expecting. So, but but I don't know, Raj. What are what are your thoughts on that? So, if we were to pick up five, okay, things that represent, if you could only have allows five, me I'm, to do uh, manifest my ikigai, let's say. Yeah, the right? five, the five best, most, whatever. I think that's a really, really to manifest a good question. Funding and being yeah. on the desert island is another, right? <laughs> exactly. And so I think you know. But I, but I think in this context. Expressing your ikigai is the more okay. relevant, okay. the more okay. relevant question. That. question. So for me, uh, the first thing is really, I really need uh, blank uh, sheets of paper. This is really, a, it's a notebook, uh, it's where I s- scratch off all my ideas. Wow. So that's very key for me, which I would need to add a pen as well. So that would be that would be two. So damn, my fountain pen. That's three and one. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So so those are the first uh, essentials. Then I need a pair of clothes for sure. Do you? I can't. Uh, at least I I can't imagine living naked in this day and age. Unless I mean I'm living with. Uh, other people who are native? Uh, indigenous uh, tribes somewhere. That are past the mountains. Even they have clothes, supposedly. Even they have clothes. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's... Uh, so if... With the pair of clothes, do we consider two or how is that? And well, then, uh, right? then jeans. I mean, we're going into some so, rabbit yeah. hole. <laughs> Sometimes. So those like, well, those don't matter, but a durable set of uh, weatherproof... You, 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 want, you want a onesie. So you're, you're going to wear a onesie, basically. Onesie, onesie would be the most ideal, right? Double, yeah. <laughs> Double onesie, luxurious. Yeah, onesie that's uh, ideally windproof, so I can survive. Yes, uh, the, the all-purpose onesie. Yes, all-purpose onesie. So <laughs> the, the back, so you can use the bathroom as well. Is that okay? <laughs> then, uh, in order, to, uh, I would actually need a phone. To be honest, to not to just to. to Family is important. Family, friends, to stay connected with the family and friends. But now also to continue. Is it the laptop or is it just the, the, the fact of communication, right? Because yes. I think, you know, what you've gone through now is that you, I need to communicate, I need to, to be clothed. But of those bits, it doesn't really matter what they are. It's these are the key essential parts that you feel that you need to, to do what you do. It, and, and actually, is it a lot? Is it? A, do you, it's just a handful of things that can get you by with, with how you work at the moment? Or do you feel that you need to have a lot of things around you for that? We do need uh, quite a set of things. I mean, we need to depend on logistics. There's so many things that come with uh, trying to handle logistics. Uh, we do need airplanes to tr- travel, meet the artist. So there is, you know, to get the ikigai done, I wouldn't say it can be fit in five things. But I guess I was trying to. I guess I was, I was trying question. to. Just, I like her, so yeah. I can do that. <laughs> I guess I was trying to go to the the gist 
of yeah surviving with the five a set of five things. Uh, just a full disclaimer: I definitely could not. Yeah, uh, there is no. I I, I I I'm one of these people that seems to need to have a particular thing for a particular occasion, maybe a bag or a pair of shoes or a jacket or whatever it is. It just seems to be that, you know, even a jacket's not a jacket. There's a wind jacket, there's a rain jacket, there's a cycling jacket, there's a light jacket, there's a summer jacket. Uh, I, I, it seems I, like I, Alex, I, I, you're not I, the same. I, no, I'm not at all. <laughs> I'm very much the opposite. But it, but it's interesting. I I don't want to jump in on that because because for me a jacket's a jacket, and maybe the difference is like the thickness of how warm it will make you. And I see some differences there. But outside of that, it's all the same to me. But I think I think this exercise is really interesting. And in, in where I heard like the initial statistic, um, the the guy who was talking about it was talking about there's there's this method of, of getting minimalization. We kind of do it through powers of 10, where you say, let's say you start with 60,000, and then you try to get from 60,000 to 6,000, and then 6,000 to 600, and 600 to 60, and then 60 to 6. And it was basically getting to like monks in the monasteries can do it on six. And Surely they have more than six. From the robe to in so, your so sandals, that's two, right? Are you casting that as one or? No, no, I think there would be two. So, and it, it, it's literally that he went through, it's like the. And this might be one specific Is type of monk. listening to this podcast? Yeah, <laughs> right. Let us know um, through one of the items that you're I don't allowed. Think it's, I don't I'll think send it's it all... over to some monks in Nepal. <laughs> I'll send it to some monks. <laughs> but I don't think it's all, necessarily all monks, but but there is a, a sort of minimalist tradition that, that's practiced by some monks. And uh, I guess I don't have to look this up of where these guys are, where it's, you get it down to, to six items. But the thing about it is what you start to do is you start to understand that things that we might think normally only have one purpose are actually multifunctional. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was something quite literally, I think it was like uh, clothes, sandals, a, a, a blanket, maybe a bed, a bowl, and one other thing was like everything they owned. And, and I, I want to hope the rest is communal. So <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's just, I, I, I I see this movement and I understand, I kind of look at it and see, I look with it amazement to some extent. But there are simply some things that you just need to get by in life, whether they make them more but, comfortable, for, but, for ease of convenience. Do you? Or, I feel like the question is, do you? And I agree with you, there is an extent of like, yeah, no, six items is, is a bit extreme on, on yeah. one end. But but I, I, I would argue, it's sort of, I, here's, a, here's a weird parallel. I sort of see the, the let's say, the Western diet versus the, the vegetarian vegan diet. And I see them as both extremes. And one is an extreme of, of excess, which is the standard meat diet of the West. And one is, I would argue, an extreme of, of lack. Like, like you've, you've completely removed all, all animals from your diet and it's too much in that direction. But broadly speaking, if we had to compare one to the other, the one that's removing the stuff, I would say is a bit be is better than the one that has way too much stuff. And I think this is where we kind of come into this concept of yeah, if, if, if we really look at it and it's really 60,000 things, like I would say that's crazier than, okay, the other extreme of like, let's have six things. And yeah, there's probably a balance in, in maybe like a couple hundred to low thousands yeah. would probably be like the, the real ideal for, for people living in modern society and wanting to engage in, in kind of a modern way. So but one, 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 I mean, building on that, right? One, one framework that might be is, might be as simple as looking at our Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And the one that has Wi-Fi at the bottom. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, not that one. Okay, <laughs> so basically, I mean, if you think about our life fundamentally, right? 
what we need to get by is actually okay there's this food element there's this clothing element but what has happened is uh, in our modern world uh, if you look at the current startup space right it's fueled by things around convenience or for purpose specific purposes right so then you come up with all sorts of new extensions of uh, jackets or new extensions of uh, notebooks there's so i think if we sort of ask what are the key fundamentals needs that we all have on a day-to-day -day basis to perform our job that which is our key driver right in our startups and then to to live by and connect with family and friends what are there i think i think it's worth thinking from that perspective probably and list it out and say rather than putting a number go with five i'd rather say uh, have that mindset to sort of what's the things that really matter from those uh, standpoints yeah. that allow me to survive and do do my best work really interesting yeah no i think that's quite good i think that it's coming from a from a slightly different way of of getting to it um I feel like I'm about to butcher it because I, I don't remember, but I think, I think the guy's name is uh, Greg McGowan. Um, tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Greg McGowan. He, he's a big guy who's, who's sort of do what matters. And he's been quoted as saying sort of hell yes or no, which is basically say no to everything unless you're extremely excited about it, like extra excited about it. And I, and I think people should sort of take that approach to, to the objects in their lives and the objects that they acquire. Like, are you really, really excited about this object for whatever reason? Then great, like go buy it if, if it's that you're that passionate about it. But if you're not that passionate about it and you don't really need it, then then just sort of you're gonna forget it in a week, or, or you're gonna buy it, you're gonna use it once or twice, and then it's gonna sit on a shelf somewhere. And and that that's the type of kind of consumption that that in my opinion I, I really on a personal level try to get away from. And and Alex, just just from you giving that example, it re recalled me something about I come from a place where consumption was not a big thing, right? As you can imagine from the mountains in Nepal, mm -hmm. where you just focus on the basic essentials. Then when I came to Europe, I was exposed to a lot of consumption. I fueled, I, I rode that wave as well. So where I got uh, super pumped up about owning so many different kinds of clothes, things where, you know, things were on sale, offer. So I, I consumed a lot. There was this phase where I was consuming a lot. But since the moment where we started doing Focus on Plan Local and Ikigai, this has actually caused in all of our team to really be a little bit more thoughtful about. So the moment I see something and it's interesting, uh, there's this extra layer of step that's taken. Is this going to add uh, good value to, to my life? Do I really need that? Do I have something that's already fulfills that function. So yeah. it's it's this subtle, just a small step, one thing if you add to your life before you get exposed to consumption scenarios, it's 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 a game changer. And I'm, I'm in that direction and I'm all in for what Alex has pointed out. I wouldn't put a concrete number to reach a target or something, but that uh, definitely shifts the perspective on how you... No, certainly. I think it's, you, you hit an ambient point. As I, of course, jesting around and trying to find five things <laughs> you can just live with as yeah. I kind of go into the studio. But more is that um, I think it's a good reflection about the point of, you know, 
how consumption is, what do we need to get by? Do we need a plastic bag every time that we go to a grocery store? Or can we bring a canvas bag with us? Can we do these elements that, that also make the change for ourselves in the world as well? And I think Planet Local and, and what you're doing with the I also tie those in very, very nicely together. Um, but so, so you end up, will now go back and travel some more now, Roshu, over the yeah. coming days? So in two days, I go back to Nepal, uh, meet my family, who I haven't seen in a while. Fantastic. So it's actually a gathering after how long? <laughs> so that would be, this time it would be a year, because my co-founder traveled uh, last February. Mm-hmm. So this time is my turn, and then uh, alongside meeting friend, old friends and families, it would also be a lot of focus on working together with the artist uh, to come up with some new concepts and share some reflections from what we have learned here from the customers as well uh, about the happy stories that they have. We also want to take it to the artisans and then discuss them, right? So it's it's a good uh, great moment for me. Also, it's a quiet time to also reflect a lot more on some of the things that spin on top of my head or inside my subconscious to really unleash that. And uh, I take Nepal uh, trip to Nepal as a journey to really understand myself even a bit more. Fantastic. So keep an eye on the space. Keep an eye on the exciting innovation that you're going to see in Planet Local. And Raju, thank you very much for taking the time to join us again. Again, yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. We know, I mean, we did what, close to two hours last time. None of it came through. And then we're really happy that you were able to come back and, and sit with us again to, to get one out there. So we're looking no, forward to this. I really enjoyed the, the conversations with both of you. It's it's very well, good dynamics. And I, and I look forward to he, uh, hearing it live, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, not live. (laughs) Probably. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank Thank you. you. Take care. Thanks again to Raju, and that puts a wrap to another episode of the Love the Problem podcast. And it really goes to show what can happen when you take the opportunities in life with the full belief that sometimes good things can come from venturing into the unexplored. We love having guests like Raju come on the show where we get to have a candid deep dive into their lives and passions. We hope you enjoyed just as much in hearing his story. If you like this episode, you should also check out episode four, where we sat down with Casey Fenton, the founder of Couchsurfing.com, where he shares with us why you should hack your ego. To catch episodes like this in the future, take a moment to subscribe, either via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, or Google. All can be found by searching for Love the Problem Podcast. If there's anything you really like, dislike about the show, please let us know in the comments below. But until next time, thank you again for listening to Love the Problem Podcast by Startup 42 Media.